0: chocolate 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 Chocolate. hey chocolate lovers in continuation of the season two wrap-up i bring to you my full-length interview with friend of the show sunita de tuchay sunita is the ceo of the chocolate garage and she was featured in two episodes last season so this is a longer interview than usual in this piece sunita gets into the planning behind massive scale chocolate tastings as well as craft chocolate advocacy and the importance of building community. I hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed talking, and keep an ear out for another interview next Wednesday.
1: My name is Sunita, and I ran the Chocolate Garage for eight years in the heart of Silicon Valley which was a community gathering space as well as a specialty boutique with craft chocolate um, starting in 2010. So at the beginnings of the craft chocolate movement. And we used a lot of different creative ways to try to support craft chocolate at that time. I was just thinking this morning, one of the things that we did was we... Mediated loans, for example, we did a five-year interest-free loan from a customer who believed in a maker so that this maker would be able to buy new molds and a vibrating table and be able to to stay in business, as an example. Currently, I'm working on a documentary series where I lead trips to Cocoa Origins, um, and then we create a documentary to showcase the really inspiring organizations that are doing this kind of groundbreaking work in craft chocolate, both at Origin as well as um the bean-to-bar part as well. So Switzerland is is the next one, and that'll be more bean-to-bar focused.
0: So, okay, what did you consider fine or premium chocolate before you got into or had discovered at all this idea of craft chocolate?
1: Well, I guess I grew up, you know, with a pretty high bar in the sense that my father was Swiss, and so I grew up in Canada, but was not eating like, you know, I ate the junky chocolate too, or candy bars, but You know, we, we had a tradition of eating, um, really nice chocolate when we had guests over. It would kind of be like the after dessert, there would be the espresso and the, you know, and the, the cognac. And then there would be, you know, a little square of chocolate. So like my dad would bring out, um, at the time it would be like lint or something like that, but it wouldn't be, it would be like a lint bar with a stuffing in it, like a Lindor bar, you know, Lindor balls, but a bar. So like that would be what I grew up with was at the time that was probably some of the best chocolate around. It so happened that my father was Swiss and would bring this stuff home and it would be like this specialty thing that we shared with family. So I guess I would say that before sort of starting to look at the developing market at the time for me, it was Dagoba. So that was the Frederick Schilling company that later got bought by Hershey's. I remember the first time when I was really trying to um, understand and train my palate, I bought the three single origin Dagobas. I'm not even sure those still exist, but there was Oh gosh, a Costa Rica, a maybe a Peru, and I can't remember the third right now, but they were they were in this really beautiful, like for the time it was pretty advanced, this really beautiful cardboard boxes. I believe they were like 68%. Um, and they were specifically, you know, talking about the bean and the the origin. Um, and I thought I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna try to taste these and see if it's true that there's differences in flavor between these three. And just the practice of like sitting down and with a piece of paper and pen and like focusing on tasting was really interesting experience. So I guess that graduating from lint and Toblerone, I love Toblerone, such a delicious kind of junky chocolate, well executed. Um, Graduating from that, I started to explore what was on the market in the United States at that time. And that would have been, you know, Dagoba and Scharfenberger was the, the highest quality that was around at that time in the U.S.
0: You still do some corporate tastings,
1: right? Um, I, I haven't done some in a little while. I haven't done any in a little while, but I am open to doing them. I'm only doing very large tastings now. I'm not doing the smaller ones. I haven't done one in a little while, but I've done enough there, to have a lot under my belt. Probably yeah, over a thousand. Is there any difference between how
0: you conduct the bigger tastings and the smaller tastings?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the smaller tastings, people can participate a little more and there's a lot more sort of interaction and live feedback and questions. So a smaller tasting might be 15 to 20, 25. And then the larger ones, like the larger sized ones we did would be like 200, 250. And so those, those ones end up being, you know, start with a talk, sort of engage the audience, get them sort of up to speed and educated about this notion of bean to bar and the, the idea that cacao is fermented and dried, you know, even just what the pod looks like, and that whole process is always a revelation for people, so starting with that in a in a big format where people are mostly listening and raising their question raising their hands to ask questions, and then we would typically set up stations like I remember one in particular that we did at Google. They couldn't go off site because it was too big of a conference, so they brought us on site, and I brought a bunch of people with me that worked at the chocolate garage, and we all stood behind these tables where we had selected like two chocolates and two beverages that paired. And in that particular situation, it was two different tequilas, two different scotches and two different beers. These, those are pretty at the time and still today, I guess, pretty unusual pairings, but really beautiful pairings, easier than, than red wine in many ways. And so people would go and get the two different drinks and the chocolates that paired with it and try the different flavors. So for a really large tasting like that, we would have stations where people would move around and go access the chocolate themselves. And then I would sort of be floating between the different uh, stations to go deeper with whoever wanted to go deeper. So they're definitely done in in pretty different ways. And if, if it's a 50 person tasting, the back and forth is still more available, you know, where there's more mingling and stuff. And we don't necessarily have these like stations manned by or womaned by different folks.
0: But when you do, I guess, smaller tastings than the Google ones, Do you ever solicit ideas of what people think of as premium or fancy or even using the word craft chocolate? Or do do they ever give you those ideas?
1: Yeah. So people will say, you know, they'll come in and I mean, this would be at tastings or even when we were open to sell chocolate, people would come in and they would, you know, self-identify as chocolate connoisseurs. And they would, you know, they would either come in and talk about brands that they had. And I would just, you know, smile and be like, okay. And they're like, well, there's six out to taste. Why don't you sit down and taste what we're sampling today? And, you know, and, and then knowing that they're, whatever it was, if it was a lint bar or some like Italian bar that they had found at this specialty Italian store, you know, was not even going to begin to compare to, to like this, right? So like I wouldn't really, I wouldn't lecture them in any way. I would be like, oh, that's great. You know, like they sometimes would come in and say things like, You know, I'm really into it's only dark chocolate that I like to eat, and I like I only like chocolate between seventy two and seventy five, you know, and I'd be like, Okay, so that's great, you know. (laughs) I'm not gonna contradict. It's like seventy two and seventy five doesn't even mean anything because most people who walked in didn't even understand if that was cacao and sugar or with cocoa butter, where the beans were from, you know, were they beautifully you know, were they beautifully roasted? Are we using vanilla to cover up defects? Numbers didn't mean anything, but so people would come in with their notion of what great chocolate was, whether it be brand or a particular percentage, or it would have to be dark most of the time. A lot of people came in with that notion. And then we would welcome them to taste, you know, because our model was always that we had like four to six chocolates out, depending on which year we were open. And after they would taste, they would understand things differently. When we would do tastings, part of our model was that included in the price of the tasting was that everyone took home their favorite bar. So part of the job that they had you know, up aside from tasting delicious chocolate and having fun was to figure out their favorite and they got to bring it home. And, you know, I didn't necessarily understand all of the possible benefits of that, but I realized that, you know, when they would go home, they could taste that against whatever was in their pantry. You know, they take it out and put it next to a lint 70% excellence bar and be like, Oh God, this is really not very interesting, you know? And so The advantage of keeping that experience going past the actual moment of the tasting, I think, was really important for people to be able to compare it to what their previous understanding of chocolate was. I have this great little story of Jim who used to come to the chocolate garage, early on at the chocolate garage. And he was, you know, this like, I don't know, 60-year-old, local physician, and he would come in and taste the chocolate. He'd been coming in every Saturday for, you know, I don't know, four or five weeks, something like that. And one day he came in and and I think that because we always had chocolate out for the giving for people to taste for free, and because we were just friendly and warm and welcoming, he felt like he wanted to give us something back. So he came in and he said, you know what, I brought you my favorite bar here. I want you to have this. And so he gave it to me and I did the whole, like, I could just sort of take a look at it get a sense of like how industrial it was, flip it over, see the ingredients. And I was like, you know, judging the book by its cover. Right. And I was like, Oh, I have a sense of what this might taste like. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to break it up and I'm going to put it out. And so like he sat down to taste the chocolates of that Saturday and I put it out on a tray and I was like, Hey, let's taste Jim's bar that he brought. Thank you so much. That was really sweet of you to bring. And so I put it out and everyone was tasting it and I tasted it. And then he tasted it after he tasted all these other ones. And he looked at me and he was like, this isn't very good, is it? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and it was so cute because like, it was like, that's such a great example of like the light bulb, right? Like, oh my gosh, you know, this guy had been coming in for four or five weeks in a row, had tasted some really, really amazing stuff, brought in his favorite bar, you know, from, from his past. And then sitting there himself and comparing it to the other ones realized this has nothing to do with craft chocolate. This is this is a totally different category. That's so sweet though. <laughs> it is. I mean it was so sweet his movement was so sweet of coming in and being like, you know, just this I this desire to like re- return the generosity. The best part of course being like him himself because I didn't say anything about whether or not it was going to be good. I was like, "Hey, let's taste it next to everything else." And and then he himself coming to the conclusion like, "Oh my god, this isn't very good at all, is it?" That's like that's like the magic that was so Sweet to see unfold for people during a tasting or during our open hours, private tastings that we did sort of separately versus our open hours, was to see how people's ideas would be transformed around this whole new category of chocolate. I mean, it really is, it's almost like I'm trying to think of an analogy with wine or something like that. I mean, it really.
0: Well, I think what it is is that you're opening this door to people learning more about their food and the complexity behind what making food really means and then you get into like the accessibility of making food at home and like vanilla why do I like vanilla oh why is there vanilla flavor in scotch oh it's because vanillin comes from tree bark and uh scotch is aged in oak barrels and it it just it opens this door that people didn't realize was there
1: yeah yeah And, and also I think that, you know, living in near the wine country and seeing the culture here, which is like a funny culture compared to the one I grew up in, which was like, you know, Swiss family, family that actually had, um, uh, uh a winemaking company. They would do like sparkling wine and other wines sort of locally in Switzerland and like seeing how they talked about wine and how they experienced it in their everyday life versus coming to California and seeing how people talked about it. There's something like very complicated and kind of fancy and almost pretentious about the way people talk about wine here. And in some ways it's like people go to the wine country and they're like, okay, I need to be tasting like Bit of mushroom and raspberry and tobacco and some minerality in this wine, and they like hear all this stuff, and then they're trying to like find it in the wine. And I think for a lot of people, unless you're really doing that in a methodical way and really focused on noticing the flavors and training your palate, it's not very accessible um, to people. And so I think sometimes people just feel like, oh well, what's all this nonsense? You know, like people talk about how much super- how superior this product is than than anything else, but in reality. Um, you know, it's it's just wine. I'm totally thinking of a Parks and Rec episode when, um, I don't know if you watch Parks and Rec, but where April, this like hilarious character is kind of presenting this wine and totally poking fun at it and like, and how ridiculous the whole hype is around wine. And with chocolate, I think it's easy for people to be like, oh yeah, sure. You know, this is just marketing. And sure. You say that this has like citrus notes and you know, jamminess and whatever, right? Like for a Madagascar bar and they're like, okay, whatever. But then they actually taste it. And that was like something that we did in our tastings is that I would have four different darks and I would explain, okay, we're going to be tasting this one. It's Camino Verde. It's very fudgy, rich brownie notes. And then we're going to taste this one, Madagascar from whatever maker, and it's going to be really like bright and sour and not bitter, but just really like fruity and red fruits and all that. And I would describe the tastes of the different bars, but I would then put them out blind, right? So they'd be like, there's this, you know, they would be labeled, however, ABCD, and people would taste them and then try to line up the bars to match the flavors that we had described, you know? And what was amazing is that because they were sort of doing it as a competition and kind of like trying to work with their colleagues and say, what are you talking about? This is the fruity one. They would get into this sort of real engagement around what they were tasting and trying to figure out which was which, it would be really apparent to them, oh my God, like it's so true. You know, like there are such stark differences between the tastes of these different bars. And I think it was what allowed people to really see this is not really this inaccessible thing that, you, if you don't understand it, you can feel inferior because your palate isn't very good. It was really obvious to people and really accessible to be able to taste those different flavors and notice and and then understand, oh, it's because the beans were carefully treated and carefully fermented, and then they were really beautifully roasted, and those flavors were retained you know to be able to have them express in the in the finished bar.
0: Is- tastings that you did and the tastings that are happening all around the world these days it's a really good representation of the educational aspect that's really needed in the craft chocolate industry which brings me to one a third question I've written down which is basically what is the role of middle people in chocolate like it's not just farmers chocolate makers and consumers like it's so much more complicated than that but that's sort of hidden if you're not thinking.
1: Yes, yes. And I think that, yeah, that's that's an interesting large question. I'm wondering how to answer it. Because, you know, there's all kinds of middle people, right? The middle people can be interspersed throughout the supply chain. And I think that sometimes it's appropriate and helpful to have middle people. And sometimes the middle people's goals should be to put themselves out of business, in my opinion, like you know, maybe come in and help with development of infrastructure and various aspects of of producing high quality cacao, but then remove themselves over time and just let that knowledge and and experience sort of stay local and be managed by local people. And then you have middle people like, you know, bloggers or um, people who are out doing chocolate tastings and then pointing folks to where they can buy the chocolate or brokers. um, You know, so there's, there's a lot of different middle people, and so I, I'll speak mostly to my middle personing um I think that you know, especially at the time in two thousand ten, there was like no mainstream journalism about craft chocolate really at all. So it was really up to the makers to build their market directly, like through direct sales locally or to find the folks throughout the country, the rare stores that were selling that kind of caliber of chocolate and at the time, you know six or seven dollars for a for a bar a craft chocolate bar was a lot that was a really big stretch and so as a maker and i always felt like especially at the time like it's sometimes really hard to communicate the value of your own product because we're good at seeing what someone else is adding in terms of value it's harder for us to really say well I'm going to charge $7 for this bar because like I worked so hard to make it and I've studied so hard and practiced so much to get to this place. And so I felt like it was so much easier for me to tell that story, like to listen to the early makers and hear and find out why a batch wouldn't get sent because it turned out it was under fermented and super astringent and unworkable cacao. And so there wasn't going to be a bar like to, to know the stories of what was going on for the makers and then transmit that to folks who were coming in to sort of deepen their understanding and their education around, around the bar that they were buying and, and what went into making it. And it felt to me that with the, especially the earliest makers I was working with, like not all of them were People who liked humans a lot or or really wanted to sit there and explain like they'd rather be making the chocolate rather than telling the, the beautiful, intricate story of how the bar got made. And so it felt like the educational portion, like sitting there and repeating a million, gazillion times at every tasting. You know what fermentation looked like, and how there was first a yeast portion of the fermentation that was anaerobic, and then the the bacterial, and just bringing that in in a way where I could tell my story and be my like geeky scientist around fermentation and how cool it is and stuff like that. That I think was so critical for developing a community in this area, uh, mostly locally, I would say, in the Bay Area, of folks who. We're like, oh, I'm going to pay $7 a bar for this chocolate. And that's just not something that at the time Patrick Chocolate or Askinosie or Rogue could do in the Bay Area. Like they just, you know, they didn't have representatives that they could send out. But I think what really allowed us to move a lot of chocolate, a lot of the most expensive chocolate over time, you know, when I when I closed the garage, I'd say the average bar was $14 at that point. What allowed us to really sell and move a lot of chocolate to people in the Bay Area was that they really understood, you know, they really had deeply understood um, what went into making this chocolate through weekly newsletters, through, you know, bars that didn't make it and like understanding why this particular batch hasn't arrived through makers coming in when they were in town for various food shows and coming in and talking about what they did us throwing parties where folks got to interact and hang out and like do these really fun teaming up with makers and competing against other makers in terms of like presenting the best pairing or whatever. So we would do those sorts of things that really helped build community and, and deepen people's understanding and relationship to, um, these, these really incredible craftspeople who were crafting amazing chocolate. Um, and so unfortunately, like I don't, I don't really I'm not sure what that looks like going forward because, um, right now we're also used to buying everything and having everything just a few clicks and, you know, keys away. Um, that the, the creation of the experience of people being loyal to stores, um, that obviously if you're putting in that time and that you have educated folks who are there to like share the story behind the bar, that all costs money. And we're not used to things costing money anymore because we want everything. Cheap and quick, and amazon prime delivered, and so I don't know what that looks like for for stores in the future to be able to have that kind of really skilled educated staff that that is there to help walk you through and help you understand chocolate, but that then but that then you sort of commit to that store and make sure that that's where you're spending your money on chocolate. I think that's really challenging, especially now um and I think that we often get so caught up in our busyness that we don't see how our 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 choices made out of a, a place of being frenetic and kind of just trying to like run our lives are is actually like leading to these kinds of places needing to close, right? And just not being able to the the passion and the love runs out at some point when when there isn't enough return. <laughs>
0: To your point of the role of retailers, I think on the consumer end that people think of establishing brand loyalty as chocolate brands, maybe even cacao brands to some extent. But it's hard for Mm -hmm. consumers to feel connected to these retailers who have an incredibly important role in introducing people to chocolate.
1: Any kind of specialty product, you're going to know where is the place that I'm going to go if I want to get like a? I'm thinking of a customer who used to come to the garage and he had like this beautiful handcrafted Panama hat, you know, and he's like, he knew everything about that hat and like a beautiful leather satchel or whatever, you know, like, I mean, there's people like that who really want to understand products and want to go deep. And then they, they take the time and build the relationship and develop trust with someone, you know? And so I think that in many ways, there are places like that, but they tend to be really, really small. And then come the problems of how to make that business work and have the right kind of model so that you're able to be sustainable and make money.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're still obviously involved in the industry maybe
1: 15 years now. Yeah. 2004 is when I started. I started in 2010. That's
0: right. So how have you felt your role change over the years, like before you started the business and then after now that you're working, focusing a lot more on the documentaries, how has it changed over the years as the the industry has changed?
1: I think early on with the Chocolate Garage, because it was such it was it was so challenging for folks back then to get their really high quality, expensive in quotes at the time, you know, six, seven dollar bars out to the market and sold, it feels like at that time what was needed from my point of view was a model that engaged the whole supply chain like can we get customers to be more than customers and so i felt like my role there was to you know we developed this program called future chocolate where people would have prepaid tabs they put money down and then the bars would be a couple dollars off if they had a, a tab like that and there was advantages to that some that i, I anticipated and some that i didn't like i would know anyone's history. And I could be like, Oh, the bar you bought two weeks ago, let me look it up. And I would be able to like pull that up because we had this this software program that we were using to like track everyone's money balance as well as what their history was. Right. So there were those advantages, but then realizing also that people then felt like if they were at Whole Foods and they needed some chocolate, they'd be like, well, I just spent $250 on my tab at Chocolate Garage. Like, why would I, I'm not going to buy anything here at Whole Foods. I'm just going to, you know, go use my my tab at the chocolate garage, there was this loyalty portion. And then there was also the portion of like, what are we doing with your money while you spend it down? So our highest level was 500. Um, What are we doing with the money is that we're taking it and we're financing, you know, Patrick chocolate to make this special new bar blood orange, you know, a 66% dark chocolate with beautiful um, blood orange essential oil from Mandy Aftel, right? So like we would help create these bars that got our customers super excited because they're like, oh my gosh, I participated in this. This is like a a crowdfunding of sorts where my money helped make this possible. And then be the first to taste these really new bars, feel really engaged in this community. I think at that time, it was really a beautiful way to sort of connect the customers and have them be really engaged emotionally with the maker. I guess... I guess that I perceived that my role was changing in a sense that what I was more interested in was um, this this idea of bringing people to origin and deepening their understanding. So leading trips, which really was my way of funding filming um, really cool organizations in different countries that were doing really good work. Right. So. By leading a trip where people paid to come on this trip, I could take some of those profits and tag along a filmmaker with us who would then film while we were leading the trip and then we could showcase. And I felt like, you know, alternative business models became much more interesting to me. Like how, how do we start thinking differently? How do we keep sort of bringing this really creative, thoughtful, different way of growing cacao and selling it? Like, you know, we've got these really much Sort of smaller farms doing higher quality stuff and selling to small makers and creating great bars. How do we keep bringing change to this supply chain and keep introducing like new ways of doing things? So we don't fall into the trap of just business as usual. I feel like we need a middle ground of social entrepreneurship of of, of, of for profit businesses that are just behaving with some integrity. And that can we make that be valued and something that people want to partake in, make it clear, make it more transparent and obvious what the values are behind a particular product and a particular business. And so for me personally, it became more important to showcase those kinds of examples. People who were doing Bean to Bar in Country of Origin, like the first film we did was Nicaragua, showcasing Carlos and his vision for letting cacao be this powerful change agent within Costa Rica, uh, sorry, not Costa Rica, Nicaragua. And, you know, allowing people to actually stay in Nicaragua and not have to go be day laborers or month laborers in Costa Rica where the pay was higher. Because they couldn't make it in Nicaragua. Like those kinds of visions. I felt like let's get these stories out. There's all these amazing, inspiring people who are doing things in different ways, swimming upstream, doing things in ways that they really believe in that are counter to our current sort of anything goes kind of business ways. And let's showcase those because we want people to at least know about them, support them, buy their products, care, see that other ways are possible, maybe spark ideas so that people are like, oh, well, I'm going to try to bring some of that into my business and, and do something that's actually more thoughtful and more caring. One of the really beautiful organizations that we're going to feature in our Switzerland film is a company that's been around for over a hundred years in Switzerland called Falkland. and they are they have this really unusual model where they're a third owned by the two sons of the original founder, a third owned by the employees of the company, and a third owned by the town that they're situated in and like just saying that to people and even just myself thinking about that it's like that's just unco- like not comprehensible for us as as a concept, like why would the town have a stake in where the company is? But think about how that changes how the business behaves or, you know, I mean, and chocolate is, is, is if you have like, if you're like a carpet factory with like all kinds of stuff that you're dumping into the river and you're the town part owns you like that changes how that works, right? It changes the choices you make as a business. Um And so just like that notion of, of, of the possibility of, variations in ownership that this person who started, Max Falkland started, wanted to protect the ethos of the company and the integrity of the company. And this is how he structured it. Like, I just think that's so powerful for us to be like, oh, there's other ways of doing things. So I think that that to me has become so interesting. And especially when organizations like that are small and don't have a large voice, I don't have a huge voice, but I but I can at least produce these things and put them out there and hope that they stick or get seen by various people and get talked about.
0: So one thing that you said earlier was you kind of went through this evolution of not just the chocolate garage, but like pre and post TCG, and it it seems to me that you threw all these different things out there as well. You should when you're starting in a new industry. But nowadays I'm seeing a lot more people who are really focusing on one thing. And it seems like people have sort of niched down.
1: Hmm. It's really interesting. I think I think that in many ways it makes sense to try to focus your energy. If you're coming into the chocolate industry and you're thinking about how to participate, it makes sense to do one thing um, and focus on how am I going to make this work? Whether it's going to be a subscription box or leading tastings. From my point of view, if you have a brick and mortar, a space that you're actually using to sell chocolate, um, some things just naturally all go together. Like for example, if someone asks me to do a tasting right now, now that I've closed the chocolate garage, I don't have thousands of bars in my storeroom ready to go that I could pull. If I'm going to do a 200 person tasting that's all the bars for tasting, actually being broken up and used for tasting, plus a bar per person, which is another like bringing a few hundred bars so everyone gets their choice, right? So if someone asks me now to do a chocolate tasting for 100 people, it's very expensive for me to do it. I need to source the chocolate. I need to be really thoughtful. Like there's no wiggle room because I don't want to be stuck with a bunch of bars at the end, right? I've got to be thoughtful about what I order. I got to pull it all together and, you know, like find all the pieces that I bring with me to go to the tasting. So all the gear I use, the tongs, the plates, the the tablecloths, the, t- you know, all that stuff, right? Like now it's much more costly for me. So at the time when I had the store that was selling the chocolate, the people coming in every day, it was almost like a wasted opportunity not to do team buildings and lead tastings. Cause I had everything I needed, right? So I think that it's a bigger commitment. It's a hell of a lot of work. And you need to have a lot of energy to be able to, like, hold all those balls in the air. But they all kind of work together really beautifully.
0: Roughly how much of the final price of a craft chocolate bar goes towards each step in the chain? And again, people tend to think of, like, the farmer and then the maker. But there is often also the price of retail and retailing your bar somewhere other than your own shop.
1: Well, so the way I would answer that is, it seems that as stuff goes up the supply chain, typically, the general rule of thumb is that it doubles each time. It gets complicated, because when the maker receives the beans, and then does all this tremendous value add, you know, like, how do you factor in all the things that go into that, right? Like, there's There's a lot of tangibles that even, even the tangibles can be complicated. How do you factor in electricity? How do you factor in, um, you know, the cost of the space you're using, whether it's leased or rented or whatever it is, right? Like those are complicated things. Those are actually tangible, but still complicated to figure out in terms of the overall cost of a bar. And then there's the stuff that's more difficult to quantify, which is 10 years of, you know, experience or understanding cacao and chocolate and food and whatever, right? Like, so I think even at the maker level, it gets complicated to figure out like how that all breaks down and contributes to the cost. But generally my understanding is that it's pretty typical that stuff just doubles in price at each step. So when a maker sells you a bar at $7 as a retailer, you would double that price, right? So you can, you you know, it costs you $7 to buy the bar plus whatever the shipping costs were. And the window in Northern California for having to ship with ice has just gotten bigger and bigger over the years. So, you know, when I would get a large shipment from Patrick Chocolate from Missouri, basically from sometimes as early as March, because he's very protective of his chocolate, understandably, March or April through September, October, sometimes it would require styrofoam and ice and very heavy packages. That is what costs a lot is the heaviness. It could cost up to a dollar per bar in shipping costs. So if I bought his bar at seven, um, we actually were at some point I realized that, um, I'm throwing this in there just because I think it's out of the box and interesting and different from the way things go. Like I was realizing I was leaving money on the table because I, I, I would run out of Patrick chocolate all the time and I was buying a lot of it and I couldn't buy more from him because he was making a limited amount. So at some point I was like, why don't I just offer to pay him a dollar more per bar just because I can sell them and I'm literally losing money or not converting chocolate into money by not having enough supply. So I started paying him more for his bars so that he would sell them to me, which is legit. Anyone can do that, right? It's like a chocolate maker's dream. Anyway. Um, so if I were buying it for seven plus a dollar per bar in shipping. That was what it cost in the summertime, which is insane, right? That's a lot of a cost per bar for shipping. Um, then I would double the price, right? So that's pretty standard for a retail store to take the the wholesale cost and double it. The smaller the retail store, the more you should, the, the more you should mark it up. So if you're Whole Foods, you're actually probably doing like, you're not quite doubling it. You're you're able to less than double it and sell it for less because you have the volume and the scale and all of that. Right. But the smaller and the more specialized the store, often you don't just double it. You might double it and a bit, um, in order to be able to run your, your, your store. The reality is even by marking up by two, which, you know, the retailers always get pointed at as the ones who are like living big, you know, Look at all the retailers who are doing this work and selling specialty craft chocolate. Like they're not, I mean, none, none, most of those retailers are not making a living. They're either subsidized by a spouse or by special conditions where they sell other things that make their money or they own the building that they're using. And so that they have this artificially low overhead in terms of rent. Like nobody's actually doing really well with craft chocolate and making a living as a, as a store, as a brick and mortar. So. I can't break it down for you exactly. I can just tell you that even if you're doubling the price as a retailer and selling craft chocolate only, it's not really it's very difficult to make a living just selling craft chocolate. And by make a living I mean make a decent salary so you can pay for your bills and your rent and your food and you know basic things.
0: Well, I mean, I wrote this down earlier and it it basically your role, by definition, is to promote these chocolate makers, and it breeds this loyalty for these chocolate brands much more so probably than the retailers. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, if someone bought a chocolate bar from the chocolate garage and then gave it as a present, that person would have no idea of who you are, or your stories that you're telling, but they would know that oh, this is a good chocolate bar, and by definition, you're pushing
1: someone else's
0: product that they could probably get somewhere else
1: yeah they could go direct to maker i mean and that was again part of the reason why we did exclusives like you can't find the bar anywhere else so you need to come to us and not because we're trying to trap you but because we're actually really doing good work and supporting the makers and putting our skin in the game right like putting money on the line to buy whole batches so then we put a sticker on the bar that says exclusive to the chocolate bar. like that's a way for a brick and mortar shop or any real person, like even like, um, a a box, a subscription box. Um, it's a great way for people to differentiate what they're doing. Right. But I, I mean, I, I think also, anyways, it doesn't, doesn't really matter, but, um, I think it's easy to mark stuff exclusive and not actually do much for the person who's making you the exclusive. And I think it's important for long-term success for everyone is to, to really try to not just extract value for yourself and differentiate yourself, but actually legitimately provide something in return. Um, and you're right. I mean, I even had customers coming in and I was like, oh my God, I want to fire you as a customer. You're never allowed to come back. People who would come in and they would taste the chocolate. They would come and learn everything they knew about chocolate at the chocolate garage by doing the free tastings every Saturday. And then they even like at least were honest enough to say, oh well, I can buy ritual chocolate for cheaper online. It's like, oh, okay. So you're coming here and tasting the chocolate and learning what you like for free for you, not for me. It costs me hundreds of dollars every day that I'm open to put this chocolate out on the table. And then you have no qualms in going online and buying it. So it's, it's to your point, right? Like there's the, I got a gift and I don't know where to buy this. I'm going to go online, which is an innocent move and not knowing where to, you know, how, how to support the local shop that got this bar to you. And then there's the like actively thoughtless, selfish, short-sighted move, which is like, num, num, num. Oh, I've learned that I love this bar. I'm going to go buy it somewhere else now for cheaper because she's ripping me off. (laughs) That's like so, that was so maddening for me. It's like, I'm really not ripping you off. Like if I can't pay myself, am I really ripping you off? I think it's on some level, just human nature. You know, we only have our own, we tend to be self-involved and have our own perspective and not think beyond um, to others and what it takes to have that happen. It's only after the fact that I'm able to look back because we moved an insane amount of chocolate in five hours a week. Most of the time we're open only on Saturdays, sometimes Wednesdays. We moved ridiculous amounts of chocolate. And I think that the reason we did that, there's a, there's a, there's things I don't even understand that were just totally intuitive and that I think customers didn't understand. Like I would get peeks into it. I had a customer come in once and he was waiting to 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 do checkout with me. And I was talking to another customer and I was explaining, this is future chocolate. You know, like you can have a prepaid tab and then it's a couple bucks off each bar and da, da, da. da. And he was just listening and waiting patiently. And like, honestly, he was waiting because as we did checkout, we got to catch up and I'd hear about his kids and, you know, and so it was a relationship that was there that happened during the boring transaction and so he was waiting patiently and as the person was considering it he kind of like stepped in and said you should totally do future chocolate you know sunita is part dealer part therapist and part i forget what the third part was but there was a third part and i just i remember him saying that and i was like oh my god you know this is like a tech guy who's like pretty skilled and and more socially skilled than a lot but i didn't know if people don't always understand why they do things, like he may not understand why he came to the talk bar, but he was really clear. He's like part dealer, part therapist, and part I forget, like maybe educator or something. Magic. yeah. And the therapist is the part of the man, like he calls it therapist. It's like the magic was that it felt good to come in and be known and be like, hey, you know what, Sam? I have this special bar for you that you wanted. You know, I tucked it away for you. Like that feels really good, right? Because you're known and your 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 um, preferences are known and um, you feel special and I know your name when you walk in and I know about your kids and I inquire about this and that whatever like that's part of the magic and the whispering I guess you would talk about right but that's like even beyond the chocolate that actually has nothing to do with the chocolate that has to do with like deeply seeing people and connecting with them and
0: being a good local business owner
1: Yeah. And not as a tactic. Like for me, like, of course it can be a tactic and I would advise people to use it like it, but the more sincere it is, the stronger a tactic it is. And for me, it wasn't even a tactic. It's like, I just love humans and I didn't love the customers who would then go shop online. I don't love them so much, but generally I love humans. (laughs) And so I'm just showing up and being like connecting with them. And I think that's the chocolate whisperer part. I think, right? And it's not actually related to the chocolate it's something much larger and intangible that I've only really come to understand over time, like later.